On this week's 51%, health is wealth. We speak with Stephanie Johnson of the American Medical Association about a campaign to promote heart health and self-care among Black women. And if I can get people thinking about health the same way they think about going picking a college, that would be a significant change in this country. And we also talk sexual health with Great Barrington, Massachusetts, Dr. Molly Rivest. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh leader. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. We've got another roundup of health-related interviews and stories for you today. As our first guest says, health is wealth. Stephanie Johnson is a spokesperson with the American Medical Association and the brain behind its Release the Pressure campaign. Johnson helped launch Release the Pressure right around the time the pandemic hit the U.S., March of 2020, in hopes of providing black women with better tools to monitor their health, particularly their heart health. She says the idea for the campaign came when her own mother was battling heart disease. Heart disease is something that has impacted my family for some time. I lost my father to a stroke, my um, brother Bruce to a pulmonary embolism, and then my sister, not long after my mother passed away, also died of a stroke. Her name is Anita. And so I just was in awe of the statistics that more than 50% of Black women over the age of 20 have high blood pressure and more than 30% of Black adults in the country have heart disease. And I just could not believe why so many women and why the age 20, I mean, typically when you're talking to your mom and dad about, or aunts or uncles about graduating from college, that doesn't usually include a conversation around, you know, you should be knowing your systolic and diastolic numbers. One out of every two or three people might have high blood pressure and not even know it. That's just not the conversations that we are were having, I was having with my parents, but it is exactly where we need to be now, having regular conversations with our teens, our kids about uh, health. And HIW is my moniker, health is wealth. And if I can get people to get on board with, they should be thinking about health the same way they think about going, picking a college or picking a car or what have you, um, then that would be a significant change in this country toward improved health outcomes. That's the brainchild behind it. And what I saw is that people were working in silos, a ton of organizations, right, with the same mission, but all having siloed work. So with Release the Pressure, we brought together like-minded squads, the American Heart Association, the Association of Black Cardiologists, the Minority Health Institute, AMA Foundation, NMA, Uh, Every one of those organizations that have a concerted mission to see uh, health disparities broken down in this country, let's pull together our resources, our expertise, and everything that we have and go after it. Those numbers, I've never heard of those numbers either, and I feel like that's very surprising. And I was going to ask you, like, when should people start seriously looking at their heart health? And I would have never guessed 20. It blows your mind, right? I'm going to say it again. 50% of Black women over the age of 20, have high blood pressure. 
That's known as the silent killer in this country. That's because whether you don't feel the symptoms and most people don't, bad things are not that are happening inside your body that are putting stress on your organs and your heart and putting you on a path. It's a precursor high blood pressure to heart disease if you don't take proactive steps to monitor and know your numbers. Why are the statistics like that? Like why is high blood pressure so much more prevalent in Black women? Just like any other thing, it's multifaceted. It's not one thing that you could point to that's the source, but it's the plethora of things that have us in this conundrum that we are in. You have structural issues, you know, accessibility issues, especially the Southern Corridor. You've also heard of the stroke belt. Uh, A big reason why that is that way is because access to consistent quality care is not the same in those areas. I grew up in Mississippi in a little bitty teeny town called Utica. People often say, hey, Utica, New York. I'm like, no, there's a Utica, Mississippi. And it would take 30 to 40 minutes to get to a hospital. I saw people in my town succumb to death from a gunshot wound to the leg because they couldn't get to a clinic fast enough or those kinds of things. It would take, you know, a whole orchestra to coordinate care for my mom. You also have a society of women who, if you look at our historical aspects of how Black women care was cared for. I mean, we had to work um, through slavery or whatever it was without regard to whether you were pregnant or what have you. So that's a mentality shift to say that you're not a workhorse anymore, that you need to prioritize your care and well-being. And then you have food deserts, you know, in our country where the local store in, in many vulnerable neighborhoods do not carry, you know, whole foods. They often carry processed foods that are packed with salt and sugar, things that are not good for our bodies. And then you have, um, you know, the advent of divorce, whole kinds of things where parents are put in situations where they have to pick quick foods and quick meals. And oftentimes those quick processed meals are not healthy for our family. So, so many reasons, uh, so many things that uh, barriers that need to be broken down and rebuilt in a way that constitutes nurturing for our Black communities and vulnerable Black and Brown communities. So that's what we're on a a path to do it. And with organizations like ours that have presence at the highest level in terms of policy, at the grassroots level, in terms of state federation partners and community partners like the AHA and others as part of this coalition, we feel that we can take a multifaceted approach to doing something remarkable in this country. And that's putting us on a path to better heart health, and we won't stop until we do it. Okay, so it's important for people to know their numbers. If you're looking at a blood pressure reading, you've got the systolic blood pressure number at the top and the diastolic blood pressure number at the bottom. What do we want people's numbers to be at? We have guidelines that come out ever so often that remind us what the gold standard of your number, what your number should be. Right now, the American Heart Association with the ACC has a guidelines and a recommended number of 130 over 80. So you want the, the top number to be below 130 and you want the bottom number to be below 80. Okay, so how should we go about monitoring our heart health? What does good heart health look like? It's a daily thing. That's the thing that we want to normalize. You should monitor. If you're 20 years old and you could be a part of that statistic, 
You should be working with your care team, your healthcare professionals, your doctor, your care providers to uh, get a validated blood pressure device. Not all of them are created equal on the market. There's a place called the validated device list. uh, And you should make sure you're working with your care team to make sure you have a validated blood pressure device. And you should monitor your blood pressure uh, on releasethepressure.org. We have access to a video that shows you how to monitor at home. We also have resources and so forth that show you what constitutes a good blood pressure number, what's considered normal, what's considered high. All of these resources are free and available at releasethepressure.org. And we constantly are adding content daily that can support not only uh, how you monitor, but lifestyle choices, recipes for healthy eating. We collaborate with organizations like WW, that's Weight Watchers, formerly Weight Watchers Reimagine, uh, to offer uh, individuals that take the Release the Pressure Heart Health Pledge 30-day free trial to kickstart their health and wellness journey uh, and access to good food. We have information from coaches to talk about how you take Southern traditional meals, right? And turn those into healthy options for your family. It's little piece by little piece. The good news is you join a village when you join RTP and we are in it with you every step of the way, always refreshing content, always reaching out with gentle nudges to remind you that you should unapologetically keep your heart health and the idea that health is wealth at the top of your to-do list. If you have been diagnosed with heart disease, like what does care for that look like? What are some things that people might find themselves running into and things that they should be looking out for? Well, care for heart health and heart disease is an individual uh, pathway. That's why our number one recommendation for anyone listening is if you're 20 and older, you should already have had a conversation with your doctor. You should be talking to your doctor about whether you're genetically predisposed, if your numbers are not, what have you. Does that mean you might have to take medication or what have you? Whatever it is, is a personalized treatment plan. And it first starts with consulting with your healthcare provider, whether that's exercise, no one size fits all when it comes to your care and regimen, just like somebody might like yoga. I like cycling. So it is like that. So it's a personal journey. That's why through RTP, we encourage your uh, selecting a healthcare provider should be just like you select your hair care provider. Honey, it's a sacred thing know and love them just like you love your hair care provider and your your trainer. We don't often think about it that way, right? We go out of our way to make sure we have the best colorist and the best trainer. But what about the doctor that feeds your spirit and your soul too and can help be your partner to keeping you around a long time to be an aunt, to be a mom, to be a mentor, to be all the great things that women love to be. The Release the Pressure campaign has free resources to help women better monitor their blood pressure and overall heart health at releasethepressure.org. There you can also find tips on healthy cooking, stress relief, and how to connect with other women prioritizing self-care. Again, that's releasethepressure.org. Stephanie Johnson is a spokesperson with the American Medical Association. Stephanie, thanks for speaking with me. Thank you, Ms. King. You are the best.
we're going to shift gears somewhat now to discuss an aspect of our health that sometimes we may feel hesitant to talk about, our sexual health. Dr. Molly Rivest certainly isn't shy. She's a women's health practitioner with Barrington OBGYN in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. She earned her doctorate of nursing practice from the University of Massachusetts Graduate School of Nursing, but she was drawn to women's health through her work as a captain in the U.S. Air Force, where she assisted sexual assault victims in the military. Now her focus is on educating women about their sexual health, from vaginal pain to postpartum care. Probably number one thing is low libido. Um, I feel like that comes up all the time, um, whether or not it's even what the reason is that they're coming in for, but it certainly comes up in conversation. A lot of focus on issues related to pain with sex um, for various reasons that can be following like major surgery or following childbirth or with aging and changes that can happen postmenopausally. And then a lot of discussion around like body dysmorphia and sort of feelings about oneself that of course come up in adolescence and other times, but also there's a lot of that postpartum. So that's definitely a range. Just to pick a place to start, why do you think you see so many patients about low libido? What are some things that contribute to that? I think that we live in a culture where it is assumed that in a you know heterosexual relationship that the female partner is going to have a lower you know interest in sex than the male partner, whether or not that's even true. That's just what TV has made us believe. And that the female partner is always feeling like they're not as interested or not initiating in the same way that their male partner is. And I think a lot of this is like sensationalized. I'm not even sure, you know, when it comes down to it, when partners are in a place to actually talk between themselves, I find that women often find that their male partner is not as bothered by this as the female assumes that he would be. But additionally, you know, this other sort of societal problem is that women who tend to be the, you know, holding on to the most, all the details of family life are so spent and so overwhelmed. Lots of women in my office talk about the phrase being touched out, which usually is referring to like if you have children and you've had children hanging off your body all day long and like the last thing you want is your partner hanging off your body. And just this, like, they're so tired and so overwhelmed and so overworked and under-supported, and there's just no space for pleasure. Even for women who maybe don't have low libido, then there's some characteristic about women who are, you know, really interested in thinking about sex all the time that is stigmatized. So, you know, women are shamed no matter which side of the coin they fall on. So if someone is experiencing low libido and it bothers them or they're experiencing pain during sex, what do you usually recommend for them? A huge part of my interest is around pelvic floor therapy. Pain with sex, there can be many reasons that that occurs. One of the common reasons that I find after doing an exam with a woman is that there is some dysfunction in her pelvic floor, which means that the muscles that make up the pelvic floor usually are stuck in contraction. So that's like thinking about a hyper-contracted muscle that is supposed to be able to both contract and relax really functionally. But for one reason or another, it could be someone has a long history as a dancer or a gymnast, someone has had multiple pregnancies, someone has a um, sexual trauma past, and even none of those things. And so they end up with these hyper-contracted parts of their pelvic floor that when there is pressure on these parts, it hurts. I mean, just the same as like thinking about a sore neck 
and all of the pain that comes when you know you're working to release that muscle in your neck i mean that muscle doesn't want to be touched it's sort of tender Again, in like a heterosexual relationship with vaginal penetration, it may be very painful um, to push into that muscle. So I feel like the absolute most common referral that I'm making is to work with a pelvic floor specialist, which means working with an occupational therapist or a physical therapist who has advanced training in women's health. And they are actually trained to do internal assessment, meaning with a gloved hand, they're inspecting the pelvic floor muscles by putting a hand in the vagina. And they're actually doing myofascial release or trigger point release to help those muscles relax Just like if you were in a car accident and you had neck pain and you came in to see the PT, sort of the work they would do to bring you back to functionality. What has just been an absolute life-changing thing for people is that pelvic floor dysfunction may present as pain with sex or urinary incontinence, low back pain, groin pain, hip pain, low belly pain, constipation. And all of a sudden, you start doing pelvic floor PT for one of those things and other things start to fall into place. There's all this increased functionality throughout the pelvis because there's just, there's more blood flow, there's more communication between the muscles, but this is grossly underutilized as as an option for people who have these problems. Wow. So it sounds like a lot of things are tied to pain and stress around the pelvic floor. What are some other things that women come in to see you for? Let me talk a little bit about the postpartum period. So women have a baby. If that baby is delivered Um, vaginally or via C-section, you know, it sort of comes back to the same thing. There is a lot of dysfunction that happens in the pelvic floor after the body, the pregnant body has held all that extra weight um, and supported, you know, the bony structures of the body in a unique way during pregnancy, which puts strain on muscles and ligaments in ways that is really not normal to the skeletal system. And on the result of that, there are all sorts of problems. And women are told or sort of silenced into thinking that urinary incontinence after pregnancy is normal, that pain with sex is normal, that pain even not with sex, just like vaginal pain with anything is normal. You know, I understand in the in the very, very early days postpartum that some of these things could be considered normal just as the uterus comes back to its normal size and there's just initial healing. But after that, none of it is normal. I forget who said this to me, but I often will share this with women. Just because it's common doesn't make it normal. In other countries, um, for example, in France, around six weeks postpartum, all women are evaluated by a pelvic floor therapist looking for exactly these types of dysfunction and sort of working on rehab with the pelvic floor really from an early stage. And it's just normalized. It is normal to seek care for incontinence. Here, sometimes I don't see someone until they're 75 years old, and they tell me these things, whatever it is, pelvic pain, you know, these have been problems for 30, 40 years. And again, every lady they sit with has the same problem, and so everyone thinks it's okay. So what is normal, I guess, and what does healthy maintenance or care look like? I would say that any amount of pain with sex is not normal. And that if there is pain with sex or penetration of any kind, that there are things that could be done. And, you know, certainly I've spoken a lot to pelvic floor um, therapy, but there are other things. I mean, there are vaginal moisturizers, which are hormone-free products that allow women to have more 
moisture sort of in a preventative way around the clock. Also, when it comes to, I'd say, urinary incontinence, you know, sometimes people will say to me, well, I'm only incontinent after sneezing, and that's only every once in a while, so so it's okay. And I'm like, well, I mean, if it doesn't bother you, it is okay, but even that little bit isn't normal. And, you know, there certainly can be work that is done. I will say that women who are on these journeys to sort of heal from longstanding pelvic pain or pain with sex, they find that after they've done whatever intervention, typically pelvic floor physical therapy, that they then need to get into some movement for their body in an ongoing fashion that brings a lot of blood supply to the pelvis. And so this can be all different types of activities, but generally they are activities where you're, as you can imagine, you're like really moving the hips um, and you're having a lot of focus on flexibility and not so much about stability. So sort of common workouts where you're doing a lot of squats and lunges and holding the core so tight and so steady can be harmful for a pelvic floor that's not in full function. And so activities where in dance or movements where you're really moving can be so much healthier for the pelvis. You recently mentioned this, but I find it very interesting that you specialize in postpartum care because I feel like when we talk about pregnancy, the conversation focuses on those first nine to 10 months and then delivery. And then once the baby is born, it's all about the baby. So when women are coming into your office for postpartum care, what are some of the things that they're going through? What are some of those, what can women expect in those days and weeks after? Yeah, so... Um... I have three children. My experience, especially after my first child, you know, and this is personal, but this is why I have sort of taken it into practice, is that all of my care providers cared so much about my body, my baby's body for, like you said, for for the 10 months of pregnancy. And then I had the baby and everyone wanted to know how the baby was and everyone was checking on the well-being and, you know, we were seeing the pediatrician regularly. But there was almost no care for me. I mean, again, sort of standard postpartum care in the United States is that you're seen once six weeks postpartum. And other than that, you're on your way to sort of fend for yourself. And especially the first time around, I, I use this expression a lot. I felt like I was I fell off a cliff, like people were paying attention and then there was no one. And myself and basically every other mother I've ever worked with sort of has a very similar feeling. You know, here where I'm currently working, we we offer a postpartum group visit, which means that every week, rain or shine, Zoom, all through the pandemic, we pulled this off. We have a drop-in opportunity for postpartum moms, and that truly means there's no limit to that. Like your kid can be 18 and we'll call you postpartum. And it is a safe place to check in. And what we're trying to do there is allow a really, and I really mean that, a safe place where it is okay to say that I thought this baby was going to come into this world and I was going to love them the minute that I saw them. And that's not how it went. It didn't go like that. You know, I'm, I'm feeling depressed because everything has changed. I can't imagine how I'll ever get to work. My partner's not supportive of what's happening. I'm you know, getting advice from too many people and, you know, no one actually cares how I'm doing. Just talking about all the different pieces of information that a new parent is receiving and helping, you know, most typically it's the mother, but inclusively like the parents. Certainly sometimes we have other trans parents with us and we have also had dads who attend that it's okay to just not be okay. You know, in addition to like the pelvic floor changes in the body, I think that being postpartum in the beginning and for several months, if not years after, it's a period of time where 
the people taking care of these little people are sleep deprived in ways that is reserved only um, as torture <laughs> in other facets and other professions. You know, no one, no one would do what parents do overnight. And this affects mental well-being and this affects your ability to focus and your ability to concentrate and, and complete tasks. It's just so profound, the change. The expectation is that in six weeks, you should be ready to get back at it. And I can speak for hundreds, if not thousands of moms, that no one is ready at six weeks to get back at it. So how long does it take for the body to recover after, like, vaginal delivery? I mean, I think some of the most, like, the acute pain sort of or discomfort, if that even exists for someone after delivery, that's short, you know, maybe a week, maybe two weeks. Generally, I I help women to think about their sort of overall body recovery. There are hormonal changes that happen in the body. For example, the hormone relaxin is released all throughout pregnancy. And what that hormone does is it makes the ligaments and, and tendons become looser. And the idea is so that you can deliver a baby through a tight pelvic canal and that those spaces will stretch. But in addition, everywhere else, knees, joints, you know, elbows, shoulders are all stretched out in that time. And so women have lots of other problems sort of during pregnancy and then after pregnancy because of relaxin. And for most, that is an issue even beyond breastfeeding. So so I often give people like, okay, it basically took you 10 months to grow this baby if, if they came at term at 40 weeks. And it's easily going to take your body that much time to sort of get back to somewhat resemblance of normal. And I also don't focus on talking about like, bodies bouncing back and going back to normal that, you know, it is so cliche to say a new normal right now, but that it's just a new place with where your body is functioning. And the other thing that we see is with repeat pregnancy, of course, that recovery time is extended. And so for women who are coming into your practice, like what is one of the, like, the biggest things that you want them to know? I really enjoy working with women who consider themselves sort of sort of challenging or that their their pain symptoms have been challenging or they've seen multiple specialists and tried to speak to multiple people about issues related to sexual function or pelvic pain. Recurrent vaginitis would be another one where people have seen multiple, multiple people trying to figure out why their symptoms are so different than other women that they know. And I think it's important and not that this is always a component of it, but there is so frequently a component of mental distress or a mental health issue that sort of plays into a pelvic pain syndrome that we can't sort out with any, you know, sort of obvious other things. And that's a delicate place to be with a woman and it really important for them to understand how, you know, maybe their history of childhood sexual assault is resulting in this pain that can't be cured. And yet there is still a lot of work that can be done, you know, through pelvic floor therapy again, or, you know, plain old regular therapy, or even just working with a provider who is open to hearing about this, even though all the testing is negative. Dr. Rivest, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I feel like I could ask you a ton of questions, but I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Rivest is a women's health practitioner with Barrington OBGYN and Community Health Partners in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Dr. Rivest, thanks again for taking the time.
An update now to a story we've covered in recent weeks. After New York Governor Kathy Hochul said she is looking into a proposal to legalize sex work in the state, the move has long been pushed by advocates who say it would empower sex workers and give them added protections. But as WAMC's Ashley Hupful reports, there are different views on how to make the change. Early in her term, the Democrat told reporters she is speaking with advocates and is open to addressing the issue when the legislative session starts in January. It is absolutely something I've thought about and I'm considering and I'm discussing it with many advocates and people who uh, have strong opinions on this. Already, there are two competing bills in the legislature. One would completely decriminalize sex work. The other bars police from charging sex workers, but still allows them to charge clients. The Sex Trade Survivors Justice and Equality Act is sponsored by State Senator Liz Krueger of Manhattan and Assemblywoman Pamela Hunter of Syracuse, both Democrats. Kruger of the 28th District says she worries full decriminalization could lead to New York City becoming a center of human trafficking and legal brothels and lead to a spike in the exploitation of young people. The difference between our bills is that while we would both end the criminal penalties for people caught up in sex work, in my bill we would continue to have penalties for human traffickers, pimps, and also Johns because of our belief that this is fundamentally exploitive of people in the sex trade, that enormous harm, physical and psychological, is being done to these women and men, that we want to end the most extreme exploitation, which I would argue is the human trafficking and pimping against their will of women and men, WAMC spoke to both former and current sex workers who disagree with that approach. Liara Rue is a sex worker in New York City. She just published a memoir, The Whore of New York. There's this image a lot of people have in their mind about sex work um, that's really scary and horrifying. And I wanted to do my part to explain why people end up in the industry and help let people understand a little bit about our world. Assemblywoman Hunter of the 128th District says there needs to be a constructive conversation on the subject. She worries the debate could be sidetracked by social media slogans like defund the police and sex work is work. Like Kruger, Hunter is concerned full decriminalization could lead to further exploitation of men and women. We can't in one chance say, you know, it's my body, my choice, and and then say, but it's okay for exploiters to continue doing what they're doing, that we just open up this wide market um, and then say it's, you know, it's a free-for-all. It, it, it cannot be like that because there are two hundreds of thousands of young people being exploited and trafficked every single day. Both Democrats also say they are concerned with the mental health aspects of the job for sex workers. They say often people get involved in sex work due to mental health issues. Rue was working in the tech industry when health problems and working conditions led her to quit. It was then she found sex work, which she found to be a positive experience. To me, it seemed like a good way to make a fair amount of money without having to put in long hours, which at the time, because of my disabilities, I wasn't able to do. I'm also queer, and so it felt challenging for me to ask for help from my family. And I think a lot of people who are drawn to sex work are drawn to it for similar reasons. Often sex workers have health issues or 
they're getting out of an abusive situation. And sex work is a really easy, low barrier way to make a fair amount of money and be able to get back on your feet and support yourself relatively quickly. As she writes, Rue was in an abusive relationship during her time in sex work and was married to a woman who ultimately took most of her money. Still, she says she supports full decriminalization, though understands the concern from leaders like Kruger and Hunter. While she ultimately ended up enjoying sex work, she knows people leaving abusive relationships and teenage runaways turn to sex work because it's the only option they have. She says it's vital to provide better services like housing and food for those on the margins. There's so much shame and stigma associated with being a sex worker. I know that for me personally, it took years before I was comfortable telling anyone what my job was. And that can be a lot to carry emotionally. It'll also make it easier for people to talk with social services about what their situation is really like. I have a lot of friends who've tried to seek help over the years, but feel like they need to hide things from their service workers, like their sex work history, because they're worried that it will be used to deny them access. I think sex worker rights are sort of in a similar place to gay rights, where people were really just starting to realize just how important it was to really support people instead of being so discriminatory. For more on the debate over legalizing sex work, including an approach favored by Assembly Dean Richard Gottfried, visit WAMC.org. I'm Ashley Helpful for WAMC News. Thanks for tuning in to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Stephanie Johnson, Dr. Molly Rivest, and WAMC's Ashley Hupful for contributing to this week's episode. To learn more about our guests or just the show in general, check us out on WAMCpodcast.org. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Until next week, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half, he was a hollow.